Medicine and healthcare have always been defined by more than just science. They are also shaped by culture, economics, politics and society. In short, they reflect us, who we are, what we value and what we don't. My name is Kieran Fitzpatrick and this is Body Politics, the podcast where history, medicine and society collide. Hello, and welcome to this latest episode of Body Politics, the podcast where history, medicine and society collide, with me, Kieran Fitzpatrick. This series of the podcast is an exploration of the way in which our societies have been shaped by infectious diseases throughout history. So far, that exploration has guided us through histories of smallpox and yellow fever across the world in the 19th century interweaving with histories of empire, slavery and social class in the process. If you have yet to listen to these episodes, please do so through the podcast's website, bodypoliticspodcast.com, or on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as a range of other podcast platforms. This is the first of a few episodes that shifts our focus away from the social effects of diseases once they infect humans, and towards diseases that originate in animals. Since COVID-19 began stalking our societies a year ago, the topic of animal-to-human disease transmission, or zoonosis, has become part of our vocabulary, alongside terms like contact tracing, r naught values, and social distancing. According to the author David Quammen, who wrote a popular book on zoonosis named Spillover in 2013, the arrival of it in our common language is no aberration, but is to be expected. Ominously, Quammen thought that zoonosis is a word of the future, destined for heavy use in the 21st century. But zoonosis is also a word of the past, with a history and logic stretching back over a century. Indeed, it's more than a word. It's a concept where ecology, public health and culture collide, forcing communities and political institutions to make decisions that determine mankind's relationship with the natural world. Although it's now a deeply complex scientific topic, we need a way of understanding zoonosis's basic mechanisms, even if, as we'll hear at the end of the episode, those mechanisms aren't necessarily as clear-cut as we might think. Zoonotic diseases infect us through other species that act as reservoirs and amplifiers for that disease. Those that act as reservoirs are the species that coexist with the virus and act as its host. Amplifier species are infected by the reservoirs and reproduce the virus or bacterium at a rate where infection of humans becomes more likely and ultimately can lead to epidemics or pandemics. Throughout history, we've had ways of describing variants of this process without using the term zoonosis itself. In this episode, with the help of Dr. Christos Linteris of St. Andrews University, we're going to hear about how modern theories of zoonosis began to cohere at the turn of the 20th century. Specifically, Christos tells this story by way of the bacterial disease against which it took place. Plague. Plague's effects manifest in the lungs and the lymph nodes, the latter of which causes dark swellings of blood in the groin, which ultimately lead to septicemic shock and death. 
Due to its gruesome details and its lengthy history of mass global infection, plague has a distinct and discomforting place in our cultural memory, created by three pandemics. The Justinian Plague from 541 to 549 AD, the most famous, the Black Death from 1346 to 1353, which resulted in anywhere between 75 and 200 million deaths worldwide and killed an estimated 30 to 60% of Europe's population. And the third plague pandemic, the subject of this episode, that began in 1894 and kept killing by degrees until as late as 1960. It was this third wave of plague that gave us understandings of how the disease was transmitted from animals to humans. In 1894, a Swiss-French doctor named Alexandre Yersin travelled to Hong Kong, the British imperial city where the infection had spawned once more, and, in parallel with a Japanese bacteriologist named Kitasato Shibasaburo, described for the first time the bacterium responsible for causing the deadly infection, which came to be known as Yersinia pestis. This bacterium's reservoir is the oriental rat flea, whose amplifier became at the time identified as rats. And it's this story that we're diving into with Christos. How rats came to be associated with the plague. How that association began changing economics and societies around the world. And how it structured the logic of zoonotic infection by which we are currently trying to know COVID-19. So let's take a listen. So, so I, I guess just to start, it's worth defining our terms and giving giving our listeners a sense of of where the idea of zoonosis comes from and and what what it means. Right. Okay. So the term itself already appears in dictionaries, at least French ones, uh, by the start of the nineteenth century, but it is not used systematically as a term before the nineteen forties. Uh, That doesn't mean that the concept is not there in in the sense of animal to human transmission, but the term becomes kind of systematically used in epidemiology, yeah, roughly from the 1940s onwards. Sure. And I mean, it pops up in Jenna's original study of smallpox. It it definitely pops up in there as a, as a concept, even if it's, um, if if it's not in, in name as such. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. That animal to human transmission is is there definitely in the nineteenth century uh, and growing uh, after and becoming more systematic after the bacteriological revolution. But the actual term zoonosis is, you know, you won't find it in many papers. That doesn't mean that it's not being discussed. And that term back to the bacteriological revolution, we, we might unpack that a little bit. What does the bacteriological revolution mean? And what effect does it have on studies of zoonoses and, and meanings of zoonoses? Right. So the bacteriological revolution, it generally used to connote the understanding of diseases in terms of uh, uh, unique organisms which infect different mammals and other animals uh, which arose with uh, uh, Louis Pasteur's and Robert Koch's understanding of bacteria in the 1870s, more or less. Now, the the problem there is that this is often assumed to be kind of um, uh, a new beginning, a complete new beginning, which leaves behind all pre-existing 
frameworks of disease or disease control. This is not at all true. In fact, if you look, for example, at the first years of the third plague pandemic in India uh, and the discussion, say, of rats, although, of course, bacteriology is, uh, is around and the plague bacterium was identified in 1894, the vast majority of discussions of whether rats are involved in plague, uh, spreading plague or maintaining plague, do not involve any bacteriological discussion. So it doesn't mean that because we have bacteriology and because we have uh, an identified uh, bacterium as a causative agent of a disease, that uh, everything becomes transformed. And that's the sort of... Uh, uh, misunderstanding of public health and epidemiology you get by following the, the hard advocates of the bacteriological revolution. But this okay. is not at all true on the ground. This is a complete com utter misreading of the, of the archive and of history. And so you mentioned the early years of the pl third plague pandemic just now. Where and when did that pandemic originate and how did it spread? Um, the origins of this pandemic are probably in the southwest uh, Chinese province of Yunnan. We, we're not sure about the exact date. This uh, is not well recorded. There are traces and fragments of potential origins and potential mentions of what could have been the start of the third plague pandemic as early as, uh, well, let's say safely speaking, the end of the 18th century. Uh, for, for this to be historically meaningful in terms of the actual categories used by people at the time, I take the start to be the 1894 uh, outbreak of plague in Canton and, and Hong Kong, because that was understood within the science uh, of the time and even the newspapers and lay accounts of the time as the beginning. So uh, this was the start of the third plague pandemic. So from Hong Kong, which was a crown colony of the British Empire at the time, then plague spread uh, across the globe, very, very fast, in fact, uh, infecting all inhabited continents, uh, striking major cities across the globe, in, in Africa, in Europe, in South and North America, and across Asia and Australia. And was it traveling by trade routes? Like the, the well-established history of plague has, has, you know, has emphasized how the the famous um, pandemic in, in medieval Europe traveled with trade. Was, was the disease traveling in the same way in 1894-95? Yes, it was. Uh, well, we have no idea, uh, frankly, how the Black Death spread. Okay. Uh, let's be frank. And this is a, a, another huge area in plague studies right now, mm -hmm. uh, and a very interesting one. Uh, but we know how the third plague pandemic spread because we have, you know, bacteriological evidence about it. And it spread through rats carried in cargo boats and, you know, in, in steamboats across the globe. Uh, also by trains uh, inland. Uh, so the, the spread was uh, uh, very fast and often simultaneous. So you would get simultaneous outbreaks across the globe. Um, and the pandemic led to 12 million deaths, about 12 million deaths, the majority of which were in India. Mm -hmm. uh, but the interesting thing with plague was because it had this, if you want, uh, uh, iconic status in epidemiology mm. and in the memory of, of people, historical memory of people, uh, at least in 
Asia and, and, and Europe, even small outbreaks uh, were taken very seriously. The ident identification of the Black Death as plague, which was um, performed at the time uh, by the by the press, by the scientists. So it was uh, uh, it helped uh, create this uh, global interest in the disease. So even when you got like I don't know, like forty people dying of plague in one city, it became the most important event. Is that a relic, like a, a, um, an aspect of cultural memory that's built on these? sort of the shared consciousness around the first two plague pandemics that's it's kind of a hangover of the suffering previously experienced or or is it more to do with contemporary media technologies well that's a, that's a very good question because well you know the notion of the black death is not a medieval notion black death is a 19th century invention uh, sure. as a notion and as a psychological structure and as a way of interpreting history it's a framework right yeah, it's a framework. It's a, it's a, the, it framed the disease as having world catastrophic properties, as pitching nature against humanity against nature and vice versa. Uh, In case our listeners are unfamiliar with this story, when did that myth of the Black Death start uh, gathering steam in 19th century consciousness? Well, I wouldn't call it a myth. I mean, the Black Death, I mean, the, 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 the second plague pandemic of course happened and it had made sure, a yeah. huge mortality and major uh, historical impact. But the notion, the framework of all of, of these outbreaks as the Black Death happened uh, in the first decades of the 19th century, especially through the work of uh, Eustace Hecker, the Black Death, he was the, the, a German uh, medical doctor and medical historian who systematized this term. That became then the framework. So when, the, when plague, uh, broke out in Hong Kong and then spread across the globe, it was seen as potentially bringing back Black right. Death. So where does the rat come into this story of the third plague pandemic then? Well, I think, I think they, uh, yeah, they cross over in the sense that, well, the rat was, well, it's interesting, but because one would expect that in the same way that uh, Alexander Yersin discovered the plague bacterium as the causative agent of plague in Hong Kong in 1894. Someone would have discovered the rat as a host or vector, uh, but that's not the case. It's not as easy as that. Now, it's, it's interesting to note that up until that time, up until the 1890s, although rats were, of course, uh, accused for many, many things, uh, <laughs> above all, uh, destroying crops and uh, eating uh, food resources, uh, they were considered to be uh, exempt from disease. So if you read Victorian literature up to that point, they would say that the rat is horrible, it's a horrible animal, blah, 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 but it has only a, a key redeeming trait in that it is free from disease. So this, uh, this association of the rat with plague is an 1890s thing. So, uh, and there are some interesting moments there, for example, in, uh, in the Indian Himalayas uh, under British colonial rule in the 1840s and 50s, um, colonial uh, doctors had noticed that Indians in these villages in Kumon and Garhwal would flee their homes when they saw dead rats. And then the doctors themselves would diagnose plague as being a disease in humans, uh, 
in the context of these exodus, right? And they would often talk about the Indians who are afraid of rats and they flee their homes when rats appear. Uh, and yet they would never make the association that plague spreads from rats to humans. At most, what they would say is that, well, plague as a miasmatic disease, which is what they believed at the time, as a disease... This is pre Pre-bacteriology, yes. So as a disease which is carried by these telluric gases, which emanate from the ground, kill rats as well as humans. But in fact, they were really perplexed because they say, well, rats live in sewers, which is not exactly true. Uh, they don't really live in sewers, they go into sewers, but anyway, that's what they thought. And they said, well, sewers are the most miasmatic spaces imaginable. Mm. So, uh, if, so if, if even rats die of this miasmatic poison of plague, imagine how strong this poison is that even rats die of it. Mm. <laughs> So you see the logic is quite quite reversed and really yes, interesting. Yes, and and it's it's interesting as well that the the logic, the the miasmatic theories that come before bacteriology, put um, animal species like rats and humans into the same framework. Into the so so we we're, we're both regardless of whether you're a rat or a human, you're equally liable to be at risk of disease and death because of miasma. Whereas it seems like the story you're trying to tell is that when bacteriological understandings come along and are applied to plague, that connection, that shared experience of disease or is kind of fractured and, and the rat is the enemy. That, that seems to be the story here. Absolutely, yes. Yes. So uh, the rat becomes um, a suspect of at least dying of plague uh, early on in the third pandemic, Yersin uh, himself says that, well, the rats are susceptible. Uh, he mainly bases this on, again, on accounts of um, uh, kind of vernacular accounts of rats dying in parts of South China at the time. Um, and then, of course, there is interest among scientists, but the first person who we can safely say made kind of uh, a scientific study that pointed to the right direction was again a Pasteurian doctor like uh, Yersin. It was Paul-Louis Simon, um, a Pasteurian doctor who was on expedition in India in order to help, uh, well, help uh, study plague, but at the same time try out uh, the Institute Pasteur's anti-plague serum uh, developed by uh, his colleague Yersin. And, um, and sorry, just to just to pause there. When we say Pasteurian doctor, we're talking about doctors who follow the ideas and concepts of Louis Pasteur, right? And worked for the Institute Pasteur. And worked yeah. for the Institute Pasteur. Sorry, yeah, as you were saying. And and uh, Paul Louis Simon uh, was the first person to say, well, yes, it's the rat, but it's not just the rat; it is the rat's fleas. So it sounds like you're describing the beginnings of a story in which this terrifying disease. Um, called plague is coming to be known by medical science through the actions of early bacteriologists like Yassin who describes the flea as the bacterium that causes the disease and like you've just said has his suspicions about rats as well even if he can't prove the the link between the two it makes me think what sort of economic responses does that trigger at a time at the turn of the 20th century, when the global economy was fast coming to look uh, a lot like our own, really, um, in terms of its structures and the amount of trade. 
um, that is going on. So as the rat became more and more, let's say, stabilized as a host and vector of plague, different uh, health bureaus, different countries um, tried to deploy these uh, campaigns against the rat. Now, these took different forms in different places, but were in dialogue with one another. So you must imagine this international dialogue and exchange of methods, as well as the science of the rat and plague, there is an exchange of methods of how to control the rat. Uh, and this would include, for example, uh, in terms of maritime trade, fumigation of boats. That's a very important technology de developed at the time. And the aim of that would be to kill both the, the bacterium, a plague, and rats, and eventually fleas, when fleas came to be understood as implicated. Right. The promise, as it were, is that if someone can discover and, and, and correctly apply an effective fumigator, uh, which can get rid of rats in the hold of cargo boats, right. then uh, harbors can uh, abandon or, uh, or uh, stop any quarantine measures against plague. So quarantine, uh, not against humans, but uh, uh, on, on goods, uh, was the bane of international trade. So you imagine that you have a cargo of, of, of I don't know, sugar or coffee or, or anything uh, traveling uh, from one part of the globe to another. And the moment when it reaches its destination harbor, they say, oh, where did you come from? Buenos Aires. Oh, no, we have to quarantine you because there has been a case as you were traveling, a case has been discovered in Buenos Aires, so your cargo is suspect. We need to quarantine you for so many days. Ta -da 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 -da. One problem is that the, the cargo is spoiled. Uh, the other is that, of course, you know, it doesn't get there in time and you lose money. So the promise of these fumigator machines is that you, you get this little tugboat next to your cargo boat and you fumigate your boat for 48 hours and then you can just unload your cargo and it's safe. So it's really fast by comparison yeah. to quarantine yeah. and really efficient. The only problem is that it doesn't really work or it works, it works well enough for it to continue, but not well enough uh, you know, to actually reach a solution. So that's one aspect like fumigation. Uh, another one which is really important for, for completely different reasons is uh, rat proofing. Now these such techniques uh, exist uh, from the end of the 19th century, but they really become very prominent from the 1920s onwards, where you see across the globe, these techniques and technologies being developed and applied to all buildings across the globe. And it's quite, it has quite an enormous effect on urban planning, on architecture, in ways which have been completely forgotten today. Right, because really. we take the we take the idea of, um pest control or maybe rodent catchers or rat catchers as just sort of products of natural conditions, right? Yes, yes. So this the, the rat proofing would involve things like using cement, for example. In the case of uh, Indonesia, uh, the colonial, the Dutch colonial authorities thought that bamboo, which is the material natively used uh, uh, for for building houses was a very dangerous conduit of rats because it harbored rats and rats could build their nests, they could move through the bamboo, they would also die in the bamboo and then their fleas would fall on humans. Okay. So uh, the Dutch colonial doctors uh, medicalized bamboo as it were, right. 
identified it as a dangerous material, which led to the massive destruction of thousands and thousands of native homes and their replacement by timber homes, which of course, timber had to be imported. And, and so it's a completely different economy from the bamboo, which, you know, like you have a bamboo beam, it goes bad, you just go, you know, next door to the forest, you cut a bamboo, you know, you replace it. Now, this is no longer possible because bamboo is forbidden. You have to buy timber from the Dutch. Right. That and it creates a debt economy. So there are all these implications of rat proofing. And so as the 20th century rolls on, how do these early ripples surrounding plague as zoonosis traveling via rats and fleas support the furthering of knowledge around zoonosis more generally? Um, the key impact that the, the singular focus of the rat for, say, two or three de- decades had was to focus... Well, some, some of the things were good. For example, the, the understanding that, the, that flea parasites, flea, uh, that rat parasites, fleas, are involved in this uh, process was good because it was no longer a simple system of a mammal meeting a human, like rabies, let's say. Right? Sure. But it involved a parasite. It involved a, a vector or many different vectors. So it made things much more complex. So I think that was a very good contribution. Um, Now, I think that that's what we're investigating in the project. Uh, What would be other understandings that came from this focus of the rat that were not a very good match for other uh, zoonotic hosts? And one of, of the notions that was applied at the time to understanding around human transmission was the episodic. Now the episodic comes from veterinary medicine. It's an epidemic in animals, but when applied to plague, it created this um, expectation, perhaps, yeah, this expectation and prediction that in order to have a human outbreak, you needed to have a rat episodic. So you needed to have massive so-called rat fall. And so epizootic effectively means animal to animal transmission, right? Well, an epizootic is an epidemic amongst animals and not human, okay. like rinderpest. So that was part of uh, veterinary medicine um, before it was applied to epidemiology. And there was a lot of emphasis and a lot of research on exactly how this mechanism worked, um, how did uh, rat falls or rat epizootics uh, precede human outbreaks, the interval, the, the mechanism, etc., etc. And a lot of this is very useful, but it also creates, I think, this uh, lingering kind of notion in, uh, in the study of zoonosis that in some way uh, episodics are a crucial mechanism or not, maybe not absolutely necessary, but they are a catalyst of zoonotic transmission. Right. Uh, I mean, we know today, for example, that this is not necessarily true. COVID, for example, is a zoonotic disease and no one has observed an episodic of animals leading to the human, uh, to hu- the human outbreak, assuming this was in Wuhan or somewhere in China, right? We didn't see, I don't know, thousands of dead bats if bats are the original. Yeah. Right? yeah. Uh, So what we're trying to establish in the project is exactly how was this idea of um, uh, forging the link between the episodic and the epidemic, how was this developed and how did it become stabilized as an 
theory, let's say, or a framework of, of zoonosis. That's one example. Uh, another example is the idea of the reservoir. Now, the idea of the, uh, this reservoir is obviously very current because everyone wants to find which is the the disease reservoir of Ebola and of COVID and what are the intermediary hosts. Yeah. But all these notions go back to plague and our understanding of rodent populations in relation to plague. And also and, plague, plague not very long ago, right? Plague less yes. than a century ago. Yeah, plague less than a century ago. And it has to do with uh, both with disease ecology framings of plague and frameworks of plague preceding uh, disease ecology, which really comes in, 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 in place in the 30s, uh, if not later. I mean, if you read the scientific papers, uh, papers that discuss the concept of the reservoir published in the last decade, you know, they recognize that this is a very problematic notion. Right? Mm. There is no consensus on what a reservoir, disease reservoir means. Mm. Different people mean different things. Right. Uh, or rather, you know, there is a disagreement about what a true reservoir is, about what a functional reservoir is, you know, is how do you define it? Do you define it in terms of an animal population or a relation between animal populations? It's a very, very complex question. Mm, but it's taken as simple. Yeah. Uh, not, by, not necessarily by scientists, but when it comes to public health, right, is the pangolin the reservoir of covid you know, truthfully, this is not a meaningful question, right? Right. Uh, because, the, you know, it, it assumes a very simple, a very simplistic understanding of disease ecology. Mm. Um, now, it, the, the thing which is interesting in studying uh, the emergence of uh, uh, ideas about, the, about zoonosis, which is what our project is doing through the study of how uh, rats and other rodents were, were understood, is that there we have the emergence of these notions of reservoirs. And it is fascinating to see how this concept, you know, emerges, right? Um, the concept emerges in order to understand the maintenance of plague in any one location. So not the spread of plague from rodents to humans, but how is plague maintained over an inter-epidemic period, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we have an outbreak in Hong Kong in March, uh, and then another outbreak in Hong Kong the following year in March. How does plague maintain itself? Maintain itself, yeah. How does it sustain its... Yeah. Um... It sustained? Is it sustained in rats? Are rats reservoirs? Or does it come from other rodents, you know, outside the city with rats being the intermediary uh, hosts? You know, these are the questions of the third plague pandemic. And they are really, really important because... People understand that plague is not a state geographically kind of fixed, right? Uh, it spreads uh, silently, unseen, you know, across vast areas. And, and the United States, Argentina, and Brazil, South Africa are, are very good examples of this, where, you know, you, have, you initially have plague in the port cities, and then suddenly plague is, you know, everywhere to be seen inland. Right, in, in wild rodents. And by the time that, uh, as I said before, it has established itself in wild rodents, you cannot get rid of it. Sure. sure. You can envision or hope or have the fantasy of getting rid of plague in rats in a port city, but once it is in 
marmots or ground squirrels or gothers or gerbils. That's the, ga- it. the game's up. The game's okay. up. Yeah. yeah. Then you have to, to create different methods, you know, of containment, such as zoning or, uh, I mean, the Americans tried uh, <laughs> some quite wild things in California at the time, anti-squirrel right. campaigns. Right, right, uh, comparable right. to the colonial campaigns against rats in, in Hanoi when the French uh, colonialists asked, uh, you know, created a bounty for rat tails leading to rat farms being established, of course, as you would imagine, so that people could produce rat tails. There, there he is, our enemy, the rat. He's about as loathsome a creature as we know, the bottom word in anybody's language. Look at that wicked countenance. The mere sight of it gives you goose flesh. This natural abhorrence of rats is as old as man himself. And for these reasons... As you can hear from that clip made just after the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 that pushed the United States into the Second World War, by the middle of the 20th century, the rat was well established as a vector of disease and was viewed as an enemy on the same scale as the Japanese or German armies. This locking of species into particular zoonotic frameworks continues in our own time, as Christos highlighted at the end of our conversation. We seek the quote-unquote culprit for COVID-19, whether it's bats or pangolins. I think we look to pin a tail on the proverbial donkey, partially because it makes epidemiological sense, Certain species are indeed reservoirs and amplifiers of diseases like plague or COVID. But I also think we do it because we are creatures who crave certainty. The search for reservoirs is psychologically comforting because it makes diseases less anonymous and by extension less frightening. It might sound strange to say that I find the history of plague comforting, or maybe comforting is the wrong word. Maybe it's that I find understanding the history of zoonotic diseases gives me roots for processing our currently living with COVID-19, even if those roots in and of themselves are intimidating for their implications. I think one of the things that has made COVID-19 so disruptive is the way in which it and its consequences are invoked as new, and of course they are for many of us. Alongside the obvious effects of illness, deaths, job losses and changed social relations. It's the unfamiliarity of the disease that compounds our feelings of alienation. But the way I see it, an awareness of histories the likes of which Christos tells us, gives us agency over understanding the methods by which diseases have shaped our societies in the long run. And it's that agency, even if it comes in the form of knowledge that might compound our awareness of diseases and their impacts, that helps make me feel more rooted, even if no less intimidated by the times in which we live. I hope the same is true for you. Thank you to Christos Linteris for giving his time and expertise to this episode, and also to my good friend and regular producer slash idea giver, Sarah McGill, for being a crucial sounding board during the making of this episode. I'd also like to give a special mention to my mum and dad, Nick and Angela, who've been the two earliest fans of the show and provide me with a small but vital editorial team a few evenings before each episode is published. On the next episode of Body Politics, we're sticking with the theme of zoonosis. 
but with the help of Dr. Georgia McWinney of Macquarie University in Sydney, we're using it as a way of understanding how human-animal infections shaped medicine during one of the definitive moments of the 20th century, the First World War. Please continue to subscribe through www.bodypoliticspodcast.com or follow us on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher or Pocket Casts. If you want to get in touch with the show, drop an email to creatorfits, F-I-T-Z, at gmail.com or follow the show on Twitter by following the handle at bodypolspod. Until next time, stay safe and goodbye.